Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. My panel, former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative Life Peer in the House of Lords, Daniel Moylan. Baroness of Buckley, what a title. Baroness of Buckley, also director of the Academy of Ideas, Claire Fox, and Martin Wright, the chair of Positive News. Do you know when you introduce yourself to people, Claire, do you like say, hi, I'm Baroness Buckley? No. Don't you? Ever? Do you ever kind of go, do you know who I am? I am Baroness Buckley. No. No. Oh, God, I, I have would. to say, uh, when people say Lady Fox or Baroness Fox Buckley in the Lords, it's always a shocker. Is it? And I bet you're the opposite. Are you the opposite, Daniel, when you're introducing yourself? Do you like to be known as Lord? I would say yes. If somebody, you know, if you're a Lord, you might as well say you're a Lord. Oh, you, you too. Know, while we've got it, we're going to be abolished anytime soon. So while you've got it, you might as well say it. I agree. I would be milking it for every single thing I possibly could. <laughs> yeah. We're the honest ones here at this yeah, table. Yeah, I would. I'd be, do you know who I am? I would be Baroness. Is it Baroness or Lady or what? It's me either. Either. Be yeah, I'd be Baroness. Baroness Jubri, I like it. Uh, anyway, I digress. Um, also, as well, sorry, I'm just getting into these two titles. I forgot about you at home for a nano second then. How could I possibly do that? Because it's not just about us here on Tubes & Co, it's about you as well. What's on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you have not already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, download our app. Uh, we're everywhere and even on your radio. So wherever you are listening or watching tonight, you are very welcome. Now, before I get into the top story, which is all about the Tories, I digress slightly because, listen, Listening to the news headlines there was obviously that story about the Texas uh, shooting. Claire, what are your thoughts on that? We just heard, haven't we, from the police department there about whether or not the police should have gone in uh, into that room. They're now saying perhaps it was uh, a mistake not to. Now, when we all kind of hear stories like this, we all almost turn into armchair strategic experts in the police, which we are not. But the basic instinctiveness in me sits there and says, if you've got a guy with a gun locked in a classroom with children, Surely you'd be doing everything possible to get yourself in there and get those kids out, as opposed to thinking, oh, let me preserve my own life. It's like a moral collapse. I mean, this is the most shocking part of this story, a moral collapse of the police. These are armed police officers, by the way, in, in the US. Mm. But as you said, and, and actually two of them went in and got their own kids, which seems to me to be particularly, um, you know, nerve-wracking. They managed to do that. But it's like a loss of nerve, you know, that, that something... And, and what's more is... The parents were outside and they were they were lining up to stop the parents going in to try mm. and rescue their own children. And we've just heard they have admitted that they probably made a mistake. I mean, that's the understatement of the year. Well, yeah. Instinctively, um, if you're going to have police officers and the police, the one thing you'd expect them to do is to go beyond the call of duty in an instance like this. Never mind what the rules say, to just go in and do what you can and, and know... I mean, I, I wouldn't be brave enough to do it. Maybe that's what you say, but you want to think that there will be bravery and courage in a situation like that, and we saw the opposite. I can tell you, Martin, there's not a police officer in the land that would prevent me if my son was in a room with a madman with a gun, a person with a gun. There's not a police officer in the land that would be able to barricade me on the outside of that door. Nobody. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's like they've been disconnected from their prime purpose, which is to run towards trouble. 
And as Claire said, these guys have got weapons, and there were lots of them, and there was one gunman in the classroom. So it seems absolutely dismal that they didn't do their duty. But the flip side of this, though, Daniel, if I'm going to think about it opposite, uh, if you're on a plane and there's a bit of danger, you're always told you put your own gas mask on first, you protect yourself because you're no good to anyone if you're not kind of protected first. So maybe that's the counter-argument. Uh, I, I think, first of all, I find it very hard to criticise any individual for not putting their own life at risk. And I don't know the situation of those individual uh, police officers. Uh, but what I do think is the case is that there's a managerial culture in operation, even in the emergency services now, which says um, health and safety of our staff is the priority. Um, there was a case a little while ago of a, a, a kid drowning in a in a pond, in, this was in England, um, <laughs> and the two policemen stood at the side calling for backup. It, and you, one of them might have got in to try and rescue him uh, because their procedures tell them that mm. this is what they've got to do. And it comes from a managerial culture. So I wouldn't criticise individuals, and I don't know their circumstances at the time, but the, the, the system is not working for people and it, it's working against it. It's working against acts of individual courage. Indeed. I mean, time will tell, won't it, how it all plays out. Um, yeah, and I just... That wasn't on my agenda to talk about them, but I couldn't help it just listening to that, uh, the news headlines and just following that story this afternoon. I've actually found it fascinating. John has just written in on email saying, Michelle, you could be the Baroness of Boofery Park. You're right, John. If you're not from Hull, that won't mean much to you, but that was the previous stadium of Hull City. Uh, the Kempton, to be precise, was a favourite stand of mine. Anyway, let's get into our top story, shall we? The Tories... You you know, kind of, it always used to be, didn't it, very clearly. Uh, the Tories were the party essentially of low tax and it was Labour, the party of uh, high public spending. Now, let's cut to the chase. I mean, we can talk about this for... Uh, I can intro this topic for quite some time, but, uh, Daniel, let me cut to the point here. You know, we've got now higher taxes, the high tax burden, I think, since the Second World War, some would say. We've now got free money being dished out left, right and centre, even to those people that, quite frankly, let's face it, do not need it. Have the Tories lost their kind of conservative way? Um, I don't think they've lost their way, but I think they've been pushed off the path. And we've got to remember, we've had an experience over the last couple of years that's a bit like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've had plague, uh, we've now got war, uh, and you can hear the drumbeat of, uh, of famine almost coming up the road. Um, and they've had very, very difficult circumstances to manage. These have all had big economic consequences. And to put these things right is going to take a degree of pain on, on the part of the economy. And the question is, do you take that pain really hard when a lot of vulnerable people are going to get hurt, or do you try and manage it somehow? And it's obvious the government is trying to manage it, but I don't know whether that will work or not. There is pain coming. And, um, and I think that the, my personal view is the best way is for the government to get back as soon as possible to the key... Uh, economic factors, which are they need to get inflation down. Low inflation is absolutely right. They need to keep public expenditure down and with it taxation. And they need to stimulate the economy and to get it to grow. And that means not that they need to do something, it means they need to do nothing. They need to get out of the way of the entrepreneurial elements in the economy through deregulation and encouraging a decent return to capital. That's what they haven't been doing either. Claire? So, uh, um, in a previous answer, uh, Daniel talked about a managerial culture. And I think the problem with all of the political parties is that they become 
overly managerial yeah. rather than actually having any core of beliefs or ideology at their heart. So that's to put that, and I mean, that's as true of Labour um, as it, and the Lib Dems, is it, you know, the joke about the Lib Dems, I think liberal or democratic, uh, Labour Party that's abandoned labouring people and working people and, and did so particularly viscerally obvious during the Brexit uh, uh, debates and, and a Conservative Party that's not doing much conserving for a start off. So I don't think we should just see it in terms of tax. I mean, that's a very limited way of understanding what a Conservative Party is, you know, low tax versus high spending of the Labour Party. The, the other thing to say at this point is uh, just on that, on what they've just done, I think that they have done the very least that they could do. And I don't think that means that you say money is growing on trees. This is a crisis. You know, we hear a lot of discussion of crisis. This is a proper crisis. And I have got every sympathy with what they've just um, announced. But what they haven't done is indicated a longer term solution. And that's economic growth. And I want to know the plans for investment. I want them to own up to the fact that part of the problem with the energy crisis has being created by a nanny statist, actually, Conservative Party that's had things like uh, imposed targets of net zero, has put all sorts of restrictions and regulations on what you can do in the name of environmentalism, but not just that. But I would want, therefore, to see straight away a major uh, encouragement of investment in Fossil fuel extraction, for example, you need to know that the economy can grow. And so just only giving out help when there's a crisis without that economic growth, the sense of a future in which you can really feel like a, a new industrial revolution might occur, I think is where they're really betraying their, their, their cause if they had one in terms of saying we're the the, the party that will allow business to flourish because you need business to flourish to have wealth in order for workers to be able to actually have the capacity to have greater wages and a greater standard of living. Martin. Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's inherently unconservative to splash cash in wartime. I mean, we did that in 1940 to fairly good effect. Um, and you could argue it actually plays to a, a fairly strong conservative characteristic, which is being pragmatic not actually ideological. Um, I think... Um, but we're not in a war, though, are we? I mean, you say a war... Well, it's, we're dealing with the effects of a war that's hitting us directly. So it's kind of... It, it's a wartime economy, if you like. A wartime energy economy is what we're facing. Um, obviously, I disagree completely with Claire about putting money into fossil fuels. I think one of the tragedies of the windfall tax provision is that they are offering tax incentives, very generous tax incentives, the oil companies, to continue drilling for oil and gas. If we do that, it means several things. One, we don't actually get any of that on stream for years and years, so it doesn't help address the current energy problem. Mm -hmm. Two, it ties us into the oil market, which has caused us this problem in the first place by becoming so dependent on imports of fossil fuels. And three, it's ignoring the fact that renewable energy is a damn sight cheaper than fossil fuels. It's also much easier to bring no, on stream more quickly. No. It's a lot cheaper, massively no, it cheaper. No, no. It, it requires by a huge, factor of four times subsidies. Cheaper. Subsidies. huge subsidies. Absolutely, no, absolute nonsense. Huge subsidies. Absolute nonsense. And you only look at marginal cost. Nobody <laughs> seriously believes that all these wind turbines are actually cheaper than the natural gas that we've been using. The, the, Nobody believes that when you look at the, the whole life They cost. are Martin. half the cost. 
They are half the cost of it. And we're locking ourselves into 20th century technology. What's half the cost of what? Are you just looking at capital outlay? What, what's, what are we talking about? Well, you're about? looking at a combination of capital outlay and running costs. And the wonderful thing about wind power and solar power is that the fuel comes free at sunrise every morning. We're not dependent on buying it on the international markets. And that's what dictates the price we pay for our energy. That's why the price has gone up in a completely uncontrolled fashion. And the government has also, it's also failed to do things that are fairly basic, like it's cut back almost completely on insulation programs, which were targeted at vulnerable households, people living in hard to heat homes, that mean they don't actually have to use so much energy, they don't have to spend so much money. So they're, they're doing this completely arse over what's it. But we had this, um, we had a, Laurie was on last night actually, going on about this is, you know, the government needs to do more insulation. And so many of my viewers were in and said that they themselves had looked at insulating their own homes, but because they had very old uh, properties, I don't know, like old terrace things, that they'd been told that that wasn't even, even possible for their houses, the older uh, properties, which probably needed it most. So I had a lot of pushback on the insulation thing last night, but Claire, one of the things I wanted to pick up on what you just said is you were just saying that this is the kind of very least that uh, Rishi Sunak could have done yesterday in his package. But don't you have any concerns that actually a lot of what was announced wasn't means tested? So, for example, this 400 quid, pretty much everyone gets it. Well, not pretty much everyone gets it. It's been a lot of uh, criticism today about if you've got a second home, then you're going to get two tranches of it. Rishi's kind of saying, well, if you don't want it, you can give it to charity. But to me, that seems a bit weird. I, I, uh, that, that's the one policy which I know there's been pushback on. I meant the spirit of it, right? Mm. And I'm sure the details should have been ironed out. I mean, I did meet a group of people in the Lords yesterday, um, uh, uh, Daniel might be bemused, who said, oh, we're all due our £400, you know. <laughs> and, and there is something slightly... Uh, yeah, they were, slightly? They were, no, no, they, they, they were not approving. They were making the point. But look, the point... I, I think, however, we yeah, are underestimating... The reason is there's no database. No, no, I, I understand. They, they simply don't have the data. I, I to think be able what they did, that way. of all the things in, 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 in the world that I'm not worried about, is that. That's what I was going to say. I, what I'm trying to say is, and, and even when Martin was saying these things will take you know, years to come on stream, what I'm talking about is the fact that I think the economy is pretty broken. We're seeing the problems of, a, a, of, of low productivity pretty useless growth long before we ever had COVID lockdowns or anything else. We also did close the economy down for two years. That doesn't help anybody. Mm. And so what I want is a vision of economic development and growth. Like an and industrial I think strategy. Far, there's far too many people who still no, want regulations. And um, Daniel made the point, you know, removing regulations do nothing. I don't mind, actually, if the government kickstarts some of this. You know, I wouldn't mind that the kind of... The government's been a... kickstarting everything from net zero. What the government really needs to do is stop kickstarting things. No, I, I heard you say that. And actually let people get on with... But I uh, think there's a risk-averse investment problem we've got at the moment, which is the people who've got the money are not investing. So, if anything, I would want more incentivised things. Just on... Can I just say something? I know that Martin is an expert on the whole alternative green economy issues, and I've debated it with him many times. In some ways, it's a philosophical difference, and you were asking about parties in general, and this is why I'm drawing attention to it rather than anything else, which is, I think it's perfectly legitimate. We should have a situation in which you say, my philosophical vision of the future is this, and 
Martin's got a particularly in green one. I've got a different one. Uh, uh, Daniel's got a different one. When you hear political party members, you know, not members, but the leadership speak, or you look at the differences, you can't hardly tell the difference. Those big questions have been sidelined. Mm. And that's what your original question to us was. And I think that's not fair on voters because they aren't given a choice, really. You're kind of arguing, was, I mean, was the windfall tax a Labour thought-up idea or a Tory thought-up idea? I mean, there's literally rows and rows over who's insulating better. I mean, these are petty-minded, petty-fogging ideas. And I think what we need is something much greater for people to say, that's the way I think we should organise society, versus that's the way. And well, we're the not but the that. problem that we've got is we don't, our political system doesn't allow for that because all the political system is is about how can the current people stay in power for as long as possible. Yeah, so all the conversations about actually how do we reorder on a grander scale the political system in this country is very difficult to have because I would say stuff like I would try and reorganise uh, the, the, the system. So I would try to get rid of first past the post, for example. Yeah, yeah. Neither of the two main parties that currently need to vote for yeah. that would ever do that because their own self-interest mm. would mean that they they just wouldn't entertain that. Well, that, that might be true on that particular item, but I've, just because I've dominated a bit, the only thing I would say is it's it's relatively recently that a kind of technocratic mindset set mm. in. Mm. That's what I would say. You know, post the Second World War, but long before it, you know, there've been the, politics is the clash of ideas between different parties. And by the way, you can't say, oh, well, if you look all around Europe, all around the world, in fact, there have been breakthrough parties that actually the, the, the traditional Conservative and uh, um, Labour equivalents in France, for example, have collapsed. You know, you've got different parties emerging. Well, to be fair, the Brexit was an example and of Brexit that. Was I a... speak as a Remainer, but Brexit was an example of mm. a breakthrough political movement. Well, yeah, and actually it was a political movement. And I don't know if you've seen today, Tony Blair, he's talking about... Oh, it's, I mean, I get, if I mention Tony Blair, my audience will be like, we're talking about info, I know that. But he's having oh. conversations at the moment about a new kind of centrist uh, movement, requirement... Uh, needed in this country. Inspired by Macron in France, who mm. made a break. Now, I think it's no. going nowhere, because that's the past. But you're right, there are sort of... I think in the next 10 to 15 years, it will not be the same old party political system. And to be fair, you know, the Greens are making a bit of a breakthrough, and I've got no sympathy with their politics, but there is something happening. They would do much more if we didn't have first past the post. Yeah. We had I think there are a lot more parties. parties but can I ask Daniel, can I ask Daniel the question? For you can. Daniel, I, I mean, do you think that there are... Bearing in mind what we've been saying about the electorate not being massively ideologically motivated, you know, people don't define themselves primarily as being socialists or, or free market people or whatever. But do you think there would be lots of votes for you guys if you ran on a platform of small government, cutting taxes ferociously, cutting benefits, whatever, you know, not doing the kind of rishy-dosh splurge which the modern Tories are doing. Do you think there are votes in your, your approach to conservatism? Well, the first thing is, because I just talked about identity. Um, what I think is, I think people do identify themselves with particular political stances. I think what's happened is that those political stances no longer easily align with the existing political parties. So they feel themselves to have a certain political stance, but they don't necessarily say, therefore, I'm a conservative or therefore mm -hmm. I vote Labour. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I think that's really... It's not that they've lost interest or wandered off. It's just they don't match with the whole thing. There are, there are always votes 
in economic competence. And mm -hmm. economic competence is also a moral obligation that governments have towards the people because mm -hmm. it's their money and their incomes and their livelihoods you're destroying. And economic competence consists primarily in having low inflation, moderately low taxes, moderate to low taxes, and giving people the opportunity to be entrepreneurial and thus create growth, which means a better life for you and a better life for your children over time. We know all that. There's nothing at all new about this. And the question is, how do you achieve it? And there's this sort of consensus that you can achieve it without that entrepreneurial input, that the government can dis direct the investment, the government can manage it all. And, and that, I think, is there's been a bit too much of that um, and not enough of the entrepreneurialism, yeah. not enough focus on getting inflation down. We've been printing money like mad. The Bank of England, mm -hmm. the governor of the Bank of England, says he's helpless. Well, he's the only one in charge of it. But so, polls, show, you know, polls show it's hugely popular, but, including but, among but, conservative but voters. Temporary, but temporary measures to help out in a crisis mm -hmm. Um, are, are still needed along the way. Exactly. We're not That's talking about abandoning people. What we're talking about is a vision of society in which the state is spending maybe 35% of the national income, which it's now crept up to 42 and it's going to go higher. The state is spending that, sticks with that, um, and entrepreneurialism, business is encouraged. We have very little business spirit left now. Claire was absolutely right. We have, we have risk-averse capital investors. Investors don't want to invest in risk things anymore. And why should they when the government is giving them so many opportunities to invest in low to non-risk things because they guarantee the returns through subsidies? So everyone crowds, like oil into, and gas. crowds into the subsidy field when they should be out there directing their money into, um, into um, investment. Oil and gas pay super levies on top of corporation tax and now they're paying a windfall tax as well. And they're being subsidised to do more of the same. But what, well, how are they being subsidised? With the tax incentives that are being these offered are not the tax windfall incentives tax policy. are not subsidies. Uh, well, not charging somebody a tax is not... You can't say you've put the tax up, but not quite as much as I'd want to, and they can get away with it if they do some investment. Tax incentives that you're talking about might be criticised on the grounds that they're directing investment in the way the government wants, rather than in the most profitable it's way, I grant you. Small but it certainly is not a subsidy. Oh, it is. That's a complete ads. cheat. Right. Nothing like the subsidies that people have made millions, fortunes, out of the subsidies that have gone into this um, um, so-called um, right. renewable energy. Final word to Baroness of Buckley. Yeah, well, <laughs> if um, in, in the spirit of what Daniel said about entrepreneurship or, you know, the spirit of kind of risk-taking... I think if you want to know why I think there's a crisis in politics today and a lack of choice, where is the party that stands for freedom? No one. Freedom of what? Free, well, every, freedom, used to, you didn't used to have to do a qualification, right? You, you, you could have said civil liberties or free speech or just the spirit of freedom. We represent a free society and that therefore means we're not going to interfere in your life unless you're absolutely doing something terrible. Not that we're all over your life and we're dotting the I's and crossing, what is it, crossing the crossing T's. Crossing the T's. And micromanaging everything about your life or your business and or your the school. Cars away from you. And, and, I, and I do think that, <laughs> that there isn't the loyalty. We saw the breach of loyalty, the break of loyalty. People who for generations had voted Labour, voted for Boris Johnson because of Brexit. That particular group, what are known as the Red Wall voters. But I think that people are now looking around saying, 
come on, what, what, where are the parties that are going to offer me something that goes beyond just the economic competence as well, that believe in things? And I, I can't get over the fact the main political parties do not ever argue for civil liberties, freedom of speech. And I'm afraid that although the Conservative Party sometimes pay lip service to it, if I look at the legislation coming through, they then bring in laws that are going to damage it. I think that's a real shame. Well, there you go. Uh, Jim says, Claire Fox is right. We need money spent on a vision, not on handouts. There you go. Uh, Alan says, if there was ever a time to bump Boris, this is it. Aidan says, we voted for Johnson and we got Corbyn. Paddy says, why are you guys even talking about what's going on in Texas? Even the Americans don't care about it, so why should we? It's not our problem. That's what Paddy says. Paddy, that is a little bit harsh there, my friend. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, we've got the former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative life peer in the House of Lords, Daniel Moylan. Baroness of Buckley and also the director of the Academy of Ideas, Claire Fox, and Martin Wright, the chair of Positive News. That's what we need at uh, this day and age, Positive News. Um, I've got to ask, though, do you, are you busy? Is it, do you have positive news coming out your ears or do you have to scrabble we around? do. There's a lot more positive news out there than you would think, which is the nice thing. It doesn't there? always get picked up by the rest of the media. Well, it's funny you should say that because I was going to do every Friday like a positive news segment and I asked on Twitter, has anyone got any positive stories? I scoured the press and I couldn't really there find any. There we are, any. you see. There we are. There That's why we exist. Well, there you go. That's what I need to do. Look you at consultant, your... consultant, get Martin in. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah. but it is. I, I do think that the news is quite depressing sometimes. There is and there's a culture of journalism that you, you're, you're not being a proper macho journalist unless you're writing about stuff that's blowing up or people being shown mm. up or whatever. And I think that's a shame. But, but also, I think us consumers must take some of the blame because as much as we all say, God, the news is so depressing, you know, the next thing that we do is click on whatever story it is about someone dying or this or that or the other. And the nice little story about someone saving their pet or whatever we don't really tend to click on as much as we perhaps ought to. Anyway, let's get back on track, shall we? There's 20 million tonnes of grain stuck in Ukraine as we speak because of the war. Now, we used to kind of take, I would suggest, food security perhaps for granted, but now it's not just what's going on in Ukraine, by the way, but there's a whole host of things, increased costs here, there and everywhere at the moment, which mean that perhaps we need to look at food security again. And this week, the government has brought forward a bill to allow more gene-edited crops to be grown. Uh, and also manufacturers wouldn't have to label the foods that have been gene edited, uh, which, by the way, many people are saying this is almost a positive of Brexit. Other people are saying, what are you talking about? This is basically a lowering of standards because of Brexit. Claire Fox, where do you stand? I'm a, a great enthusiast. I'm a great enthusiast for gene editing and, in fact, for ge genetic modification. Although this is a different point. Actually, yeah, but food. on that point, just two secs, because you raise a very key point, and I'll just explain it to the viewers. You mentioned gene editing. So they are two different things, by the way, uh, gene editing and genetically modified, because we hear these terms. So just a quick explainer before we go on is perhaps sensible. Uh, when it comes to gene editing, basically what it means is part of the existing DNA is switched off or on with genetically uh, modification. Something external is added to the plant's existing DNA. Do you get it? Does that make sense? Are we all more the wiser now? Anyway, Claire, continue. Uh, yeah, and people should actually seriously Google and read about it because it is quite important. Mm. I mean, the, the reason why it's a gain from Brexit is because for quite some time, people in agriculture and in the science world 
have been arguing that we should have the freedom to do um, gene editing in relation to agriculture. And because we're in the European Union, we weren't able to. And that, the, the same is true, actually, even about having a debate on genetic modification. Now, the reason why it's important is because it helps you be more productive. And it, it means that, for example, you can have um, crops that are resistant to uh, famine, oh, not famine. Climate right, change. Climate change, and, yeah. any of these different things. They're more uh, resilient in many instances you can be in a situation particularly which is why i like gm crops where you can actually create more food with less land these kind of important steps forward so i'm a, an enthusiast for it i don't think they need to be labeled and people shouldn't be worried about them there's been huge scare stories over the years like franco food franken food or was that yeah, 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 page? I mean. but that was that that actually was a great deal of lobbying by some you know people who don't like gm crops who kind of made people scared. And we know about the cultural fear. We've just been through it with um, uh, COVID. So I, I, I would say that we need a bit more scientific innovation. Get rid of those regulations that Daniel was talking about before and, and let's grow more crops. Just, just on the Ukraine situation and the grain, it's very frightening for certain countries mm. that they're going to be in this mm. situation. Um, Parts of uh, particularly the Middle East are dependent, and there is real fear here, and it is a terrible consequence. But I, but I also think that the, the discussion around food, it, but we shouldn't get into, we shouldn't panic about that either. I mean, what we should be looking at is how we can help those countries that are now going to be facing famine ourselves, whether we can do anything to increase the amount of grain that we produce to send there, and so on and so forth. It's the costs that is going to be really tragic for some countries so it's it's important but not it's not going to have a detrimental massive detrimental effect here despite the fish and chips story oh yes yeah but <laughs> and, and, and we can't import russian whitefish and i think well that's one of the reasons why we needed to have greater control of our fishing commute our fishing around um when we left the eu and sadly the brexit deal didn't give us as much access to whitefish as we'd want but i would uh I'd get fishing locally myself. Daniel? I, I think I'm, I agree with Kerr. I'm, I'm relaxed about gene editing and even um, a genetic modification. But I think this is part of a bigger thing. We've taken back control of our agricultural policies from the European Union. But we haven't yet developed a coherent policy. That's and true. Farmers do not know what it is we, that they're actually meant to be doing. And we need to get that sharpened up. And in my view... A lot of the stuff we talked about, about rewilding and making them custodians of the countryside and stewards and wandering around encouraging butterflies or whatever, I think a lot of that now has been brought into sharp focus by this war, um, which has said what we need is higher levels of food security here. Not total food security, but greater assurance. And what we should be doing is having a clear policy soon that says that farmers should be there to produce food. And that's what they're going to be encouraged to do. And that's what the regulatory environment will tell them to do, whether that's growing grain, rearing cattle, producing milk, giving us nice beef steaks and pork and things like that that keep us all healthy and happy. And the more of it, the better. And the sooner the government tells them that, the better for us all. Awesome. <laughs> yes. And if it's grown in such a way and produced in such a way that um, it's exhausting the soil on which future food production depends. They have more fertiliser. That's a bit of a problem. And then we have more and more fertiliser. 
and so we have more and more problems with the eutrophication in rivers and so on and so forth. Um, it's worth remembering, I think, that when it comes to food security, two-thirds of our land is used for livestock production, whether that's grazing or increasingly producing feed. Not just in this country, it's one of the main drivers of rainforest destruction, which is one of the main drivers of climate change, which will be one of the main drivers and already is one of the main drivers of reduced food productivity in developing countries. You know, it's been hitting 50 degrees centigrade uh, on the northern Indian plains. You can't produce big. much within 50 degrees centigrade with or without GM. Um, we also waste food massively. Around about one third of the food that is produced never gets eaten. So we've got, we've got things that we need to address and can address in a fairly straightforward way. You don't have to be a militant vegan to think that just maybe easing up on meat might be a way of ensuring that there's more food to go around for everybody. Um, more meat. I'm, not, I'm not fanatically opposed to GM at all. If it's used in the right way to improve productivity, as Claire was saying, I think there's real potential in it, particularly when it comes to something like um, modifying crops so that they become, become salt tolerant because the problem of salinification of salt intrusion into uh, many of the world's coastal regions is going to be a huge problem but in I... terms of food productivity. I'm, I'm actually more excited, in a way, about some of the future food technologies, uh, producing protein in laboratories, lab-grown meat and so on. A lot of people think, oh, my God, this is weird, it's not natural. But actually, the diet we eat nowadays is hardly natural either. Um, there's a lot of people emailing in, I have to say, um, that are kind of saying that one of the problems here is the point that we've just been discussing a second ago, which is the whole climate stuff. Um, because Philip, for example, is saying agricultural land in Cornwall is now covered in solar panels. Uh, the problem here is that too much of the land is being given over to uh, wind farms, things like that. What would you say back to that? Um, well, wind farms don't take up a huge amount. They don't have a, don't have a very big footprint. So you can carry on growing stuff around it and you can carry on grazing cattle and sheep around solar panels. You can look out the window of the train going across southern England, you'll see that happening. Um, there's very little competition except for, and I think this is always a mistake when it's done, except for if you're growing crops for biodiesel, which uh, was encouraged uh, by the European Union, mistakenly. Um, and I think then that's foolish. It's foolish to grow fuel on land, but it's fine to use the land to grow, as it were, renewable power because you can get a lot of it while still producing food around it. And well, onshore wind is the cheapest source of electricity we can have in this country now. One of the problems I think, Michelle, is that, that, that food has become overly politicised in some ways, like you were talking about the European Union. They're actually discussing at the moment a ban on the use of palm oil and the reduction of palm oil and regulations as it happens I'm worried that the UK government might voluntarily emulate this. Um, palm oil is very... And they're doing that because of deforestation mm. and climate change. But actually, palm oil is an essential part of food production in many ways. It's going to be disastrous if you can't use palm oil. Palm oil has become like an evil food. And it reminds me of the, the um, you know, the... the, the what's this? Eaten mess and... What's... Um, Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver's eaten mess... <laughs> Eaten mess protest last week, you know, which was uh, two for the price of one, you know, is evil. Um, in the House of Lords this week, there was a there was an excruciating conversation about the problems of of um, sugar in bread, how we had to have more and more regulations that stop sugary foods, how it was disgusting that people wanted to eat cheap food. I think God, we've got a cost of living crisis, right? 
and 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 people are worried about the amount of sugar in bread. I mean, it's it reminds that, me of the kind of don't you know let them eat cake. You know yeah, what I mean? It's like it's, it, people might just want cheap bread. It's, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's that last point as well. It's that it is a tiny number of people who are obsessed by this, who've got control of the levers of power and are actually determining what everybody else is going to be able to eat, just as they're determining whether, how they're going to be transported. And nobody is consulting people about what they actually want. Nobody's involving the population at large. Yeah. It's all being decided for them, and it's being decided now. You won't be surprised to note, I'm afraid, um, Lord Moylan, that <laughs> your own party, instead of actually arguing against this, um, th these arguments that were coming from Labour and Lib Dem and Green peers, um, actually sort of said, don't worry, we are on the case, we're going to make sure we ban sugary food, salt, you know, and yeah, so on and so on. By the time absolutely. you finish, it's like the nanny state gone mad. And, then, and then after they put all the bans in place, a sensible prime minister like Boris says, let's not do this after all. And that's a real bone of contention. I'd rather see them stand up and say, no, we're not going to do these things in the first place. Well, yeah. meanwhile, meanwhile, the NHS is collapsing under an obesity crisis. That's so we have to have something. No, no, if no. The no, government, no. If the government's job is... The NHS is not collapsing under an obesity crisis. It is crisis. in danger of there, doing there so. There are many pressures on the NHS. One of them is, rela is related to obesity. Yes. That is a particular issue. The whole idea that it's collapsing would be absolutely fine if you solve the obesity crisis, which is what you're implying. No, is, I wasn't. Is not the, well, it's, well, what you're saying, it's not collapsing under an obesity crisis. I don't know where this obesity crisis is coming from anyway. I don't actually know. Well, I, I see, I'm told that a quarter of all kids are obese. I don't see them on the streets. I don't certainly don't you see... You don't see Oh, I see kids. some, but I don't I, see a quarter. I, I don't I, see a quarter. I think it's over... And I don't see yeah. them transitioning into, into obese teenagers, necessarily. Right, don't you? Oh. I think there's, um, a problem you of, there's a problem of diabetes. You do see needs... some. There is a problem of diabetes. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a gro it's a growing problem. Yeah. So I'm not saying the answer to everything is to ban... You know, the yeah, answer to every challenge is to ban yeah, it. Good. But a responsible but, government but, has to respond to something. But the way to lose weight... I lost... A few years ago, I went on a diet. I lost five stone. The way to lose weight, I learned, was you have to eat less. It's no good, the government saying, and you need to know what calories you're eating. It's no good saying, we'll take this particular food away because it's a bit sugary, if everybody just eats more of something else. Mm. It just doesn't work. But I, and, I, and these measures the government has recently enacted, even by their own calculations, are going to reduce daily calories by three calories. That's half a gram of butter equivalent. Less right. than half a gram. Right. Well, as much as I am enjoying this, and I could absolutely keep yeah. this uh, oh. ongoing, but I am being told over and over I've got to go to a break. So uh, I think we've just come up with a new spin-off show, the Diet with Daniel. Yeah, Daniel. You <laughs> yeah, you could give us all that. tips. Yeah, five stone. Yeah, five stone weight loss. That is incredible. Yeah. Hello there, I'm Michelle Jubery. This is Jubes & Co. Quick reminder as to who is keeping me company tonight. Former advisor to Boris Johnson, now Tory life peer in the House of Lords, Daniel Moylan, Baroness of Buckley, uh, Claire Fox, and also Martin Wright, the chair of Positive News. We were just continuing our conversation there in the break about obesity. Uh, we, I literally could talk about that topic all day long because I find it so fascinating and always different opinions. Um, right, not, we're almost time to finish. Look at that, 10 to 7. Where does the time go when you're having fun, eh? Uh, long story short, uh, are you having a big party to mark the Jubilee? Daniel, are you? Uh, uh, we are having a street party, and uh, I think this is fantastic, and I think uh, government, uh, I think council should be supporting this. 
because I think part of the fun of life is having fun. Yeah. People are going to enjoy this. They're all going to love it. We all deserve a party. We've had a tough time. The Queen deserves a party. She is magnificent, and and I think it's tremendous. The whole well, thing, and this is something I don't mind seeing a bit of public, not much, a bit of public money spent on. Well done. Well done. Yes, Martin. Do you agree? Absolutely. This is a first. I agree 100% with my Ooh, Lord Moylan. Yes. Spot on. We need a big party now and again. Um, Funny enough, I can remember 77. I'm old enough to remember the 77 Jubilee. Um, and I think in some ways there was more affection for the institution of the monarchy perhaps in those days. On the other hand, God save the Queen, as in God save the Queen, the fascist regime by the Sex Pistols was mm. topping the chart in Jubilee week. So maybe, maybe opinion was divided. But I think an excuse for a party is a grand thing. Yeah, Claire? I think that people have had a pretty joyless time and they want to enjoy yeah. it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to any street parties. I'm not a big royalist. I think, however, that people have great affection for the Queen, mm -hmm. if not the institution of the mm -hmm. royal family. That's one thing that's changed mm -hmm. since the 70s. Yeah. Um, but just to go back to our previous topic, I would anticipate that everybody's going to be eating lots and lots and lots and lots of that special trifle that was designed for this very uh, occasion that won the prize. And I didn't see anybody going, I mean, that's what's funny, you know, whether this is going to lead to obesity or not, sometimes <laughs> you want to eat sugary. Oh, I love trifles. Indulgent. Do you know what Absolutely else? Absolutely enjoy yourself. So I hope there's lots of very unhealthy junk food eaten over the course of the next week. Do you like Black uh, Forest trifle? Have you ever well, had that? Uh, yeah, I have had that. Very I'm not nice. a great trifle Very person, nice. but I do occasionally like to indulge. The main thing is let everybody have a really good time. But I, I think... It, and then people, get back to micromanaging. But they do, they do actually are doing it genuinely because yeah. there's a lot of affection for the Queen. Absolutely. So I don't want to take from that. There's a yeah. kind of serious point to this. I have these yeah. little visions of people having the Jubilee Street parties and then having a load of civil servants to next to them with their clipboards, monitoring the well, sugar intake and the calorie contents. No, but they have done in... that with health and safety with a lot of these street parties. A lot of people are complaining <laughs> yes. that you can't organise them because the bunting is being taken down. Yeah, but Claire, you know, it's I've so been... joyless. But I've been... Face. people for that because people sit there and say oh council's health and safety mad the reason that councils are health and safety mad is because so many people are desperate to sue councils and the like the second anything goes wrong so councils have to cover their backsides never uh, make all an excuse times. for po-faced council officials who don't need much of an excuse oh i just think everyone I, I should say that the people's republic of hackney where i live has been positively promoting the idea of street parties Good. have they now that's very yeah. positive Right, well, uh, before I forget, sitting waiting patiently, Patrick Christie's is coming up next. Patrick, what have you got on your show, Friday Night Feast? Yeah, well, Michelle, this is a show where quite literally anything can happen. So we're attempting not one, not two, but three different world record attempts live on air tonight in Challenge Christie's. We tried to rehome a rescue dog. As far as we're aware, more of our attempts have ended in euthanasia than rehoming so far. However, we're going to try and change that tonight, people, OK? There'll be some serious stuff. Is our Union Jack actually racist? And some light-hearted things as well, because we're looking at some of the most viral video clips from the week, including a man who's now a dog, OK? Tune in, seven till nine. What? A man that is now... Honestly, sometimes yep. doing this job, I think to myself, I've heard it all, and then I just hear something that makes me think, no, I haven't at all. World record uh, attempts. I wonder if one of those is eating as much trifle as you can. If it is, I might stay behind.
What? Patrick, look, Patrick is still chipping in. Go away, Patrick. This is Jubes and Co. for at least another 30 seconds, everybody. Uh, right, what else is going on? Hamble is saying, Jubes, I'm a vegetarian, but cruelty-free meat is an excellent idea. It might even turn me back to the dark side again. That's all about the genetically edited food. Uh, lots of you quite divided on that, by the way. Some people are saying, no way would I eat chemical soup. Um, Hmm, not quite sure that it is uh, quite no. as simple as that, I've got to yeah. say. Matthew says, I'm going to be eating lots of proper British meat. Yeah. Um, you also say something else, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that, actually, uh, if it's tea time. But I have read it, uh, Matthew, and I hear what you're saying. got to say, um, Bernard says, I can remember in 1953, the Coronation Party, we had in our streets. Uh, it was fabulous. Lots of people saying uh, the Queen is a prime example of what happens to... Oh, actually, no, that's not... I thought you were saying something completely different, Bill. I was glancing very quickly down my emails, but lots of you. Uh, Gary says, Michelle, great show. Uh, this is history. Let Let's party. I completely agree with you. That's all I've got time for. Thank you very much to my panel. Thank you to you at home. And party I shall be doing because I have got a week off now. So have a good time. Enjoy your bank holidays. Enjoy your jubilee. Uh, and don't forget to come back and see me. I'll be back six o'clock. Bev Turner will be covering for me in the meantime. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.